Hi, everybody. My name is Tony Ann Marcolini. Welcome to the podcast, It May Interest You to Know. I have a very special guest with me today, a retired colonel from the United States Air Force. He was a fighter jet pilot, a NASA astronaut. Uh, Now he's moved into being an author and a director. So I'm super excited to get to cover uh, his magnificent career with him. Please welcome Colonel Terry Wirtz to the podcast. Thanks, Tony Ann. Thanks for having me here. Oh, thanks for being here. Uh, I really wanted to to start. I mean, you have such a, a an illustrious career. To be honest with you, it was it was hard to know coming into this where to begin. Uh, there's a temptation to begin closer to the end, you know, which is more of the exciting stuff. But I did want to just take you through a little bit. Um, you know, the early years. You know, when you when you get to the Air Force uh, and you become um, a fighter jet pilot and and the experience of learning. I mean, did you have an interest in flying before that? Was this just all new to you? How, how did how did what were you, how were you drawn into the Air Force? I was always interested in airplanes. Uh, but like I tell the story, the first book I ever read was about Apollo. So I grew up with posters of the space shuttle and galaxies on the wall and also airplanes. So I always wanted to be a pilot. Um, I read a book called The Right Stuff when I was 13, and that really got me um, focused on how to do it. You know, those guys had been fighter pilots and test pilots, so I went to the Air Force Academy, and man, I really wanted to be a fighter pilot. That's what I wanted more than anything, Um, and Top Gun came out when I was a cadet, so uh, that certainly helped, but yeah, Yeah. it was something I always wanted to do. So once you were there, was it complicated? I mean, it it appears that it would. I mean, for someone, it it felt like it took me forever to learn how to drive a car. (laughs) So, yeah, it's uh, it's definitely a process. So when I was a cadet, I actually did a a a glider soaring program, um, where you can solo in a glider, which I love doing. And so they picked me to be an instructor. So I was one of the cadet instructors that taught other cadets how to fly gliders and we, we took them through to solo. Um, so I kind of fell in love with gliding. I, ironically, I flew the world's heaviest glider in the space shuttle, uh, many years later. Uh, cause when it comes down to land, there's no engines. You're going to, you got one shot to land. You're, you're a 200 and some thousand pound glider. Um, and then I got my private pilot's license in a Cessna and then went to pilot training and flew T-37s and T-38s. And, um, was fortunate enough got picked to fly the F-16, which was my uh, the best airplane I've ever flown. It was an awesome jet. Um, so that was that was how I got into flying. Could you have ever imagined? I mean, most the little boys, right? Think about I think NASA astronauts as wow. I mean, they they idolized them. Uh, was it the same for you? Did you did you come from that mentality as a child? I did. I um, wanted to, like I said, be an astronaut. I had these old books that my parents got me. It was kind of like encyclopedias of spaceflight. And so I had all the different Gemini astronauts memorized and Apollo missions memorized. And I had a record set where you could put on the record and just listen to uh, official NASA comm. So they just recorded mission control talking to the astronauts. And I had no idea what they were saying, but it sounded cool. So I would just play these things and listen Um, so yeah, I pretty much knew a lot about NASA. I didn't know, it's not like I came from a family of astronauts, but I, you know, I learned it through books and, um, reading really books were just really important when I was a kid. Yeah. Same, same to me now, actually. (laughs) Well, now me, especially with, you know, I've been right. I've, I've started writing them. I was probably the least likely to write a book in high school. I was a terrible English student. Um, but now it's kind of how I make my living is speaking and, and writing. Well, I, I'm familiar with two of your books, of course. Um, one, How to Astronaut, which I read, right. which is a fantastic read. It's, um, wow, it's a fast read uh, and it's a very entertaining read. So I enjoyed it very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks oh. for saying that. That was my goal. My goal was to make you laugh and say, wow. And it's not for space nerds. It's for anybody, really, I hope. Oh, it's definitely for anybody. Uh, and I didn't feel like I was lacking because I I didn't uh, I didn't have the necessary science background at all. Right. It's right. just an entertaining, funny, interesting read. It's um it's and it's a page turner, which was surprising to me. Uh, I'm I'm a bit of a literary fiction um, 
connoisseur, right? I, I think I gobble up a lot of literary fiction. I do like mystery. So I went into this with interest, but I didn't expect it to be a, a page turner, but it really was, it was lovely. It was like sitting, having a conversation with somebody who's just funny and interesting and entertaining. And I was like, no, ooh, like the <laughs> parts are a little gross, but, <laughs> but a few I parts, felt, yeah. Yeah. But I just found it really engaging. So I wanted well, to do that. that. That makes me really happy. That was my exact goal. It's 50, how to astronaut is 51 short essays about some stuff you'd expect and some stuff you probably wouldn't expect um about spaceflight so it, i wrote it to like read by the pool or put it on your it's a perfect mother's day gift actually mother's day is coming up here i don't know if when the podcast is going to drop but um it would be a great mother's day or father's day thing i totally agree um and, and i've also and i want to get into some of the stories that were in the book because i think they're they're so entertaining mm -hmm. uh, and but i just want to mention too that i also did take a look at the other book you had um uh, a view from above, yeah, uh, is the name of it, right? And that's a more of a pictorial, uh, where I, you put these just magnificent photos that you took from space. So I want to talk about both books, um, but if I could, before I get to the stories in the book, uh, I think I, I, I mean, I feel like I have to ask this question: What is it like to launch into space? Like, what is going through your head? What is the what is that sensation like? Well, for the first thing is you're laying on your back for hours before you launch. And so it gets a little old, you know, sitting there for hours in a, in a tight spacesuit with, um, you know, with you're strapped in and you can't move. And, and by the time you launch, you're like, you're ready to launch just so you can get out of the spacesuit and get out of this laying on your back position. Do they, the, do they do they train you to meditate? If I can just jump in there, I'd be curious, like if that would be some kind of training, like to get to a place where you can hmm. be calm and stay, you know? That's a good point. They don't. Um, my uh, technique um, on the shuttle, we had a intercom system where you can talk to the other astronauts or you can talk to folks on the ground. If you push a button, you're talking on the radio. <laughs> but if you don't push the button, you're just talking automatically, like, with each other um on an in intercom loop and and we can talk to each other the the doctors the flight doctors can hear us but they can't talk to us they just want to be able to listen in like to see if somebody's getting sick or whatever so they they can help out so i printed out a, a sheet of doctor jokes and put it on the velcro clip and so i just <laughs> <laughs> um i was just telling doctor jokes the whole time i don't have them in front of me but like Hey, Zambo, how many doctors does it take? <laughs> Whatever. And uh, that was a lot of fun. And the doctors just had to sit there and take it. You know, they couldn't say anything back to us. So, but we were there for a couple hours. I actually fell asleep. I wedged my hands into the seatbelt. There's some straps that they strap you in with. And I kind of snoozed off. Because if I didn't do that, when I fell asleep, my hand would have fallen backwards and slapped uh, Steve Robinson, who was MS2, sitting in the right behind us. So anyway. It's a were long time on the pad. Were you nervous? I was nervous. Yeah. My first flight, the first night we went out, I was like, okay, this is different. I, I've been training for a decade. It wasn't like I hadn't had lots of time to think about it and talk to other people, but you know, we're about to go into space or blow up. <laughs> so that would be my thought. That would be my, yeah. cause I can remember the, the time when, when it exploded and the, there yeah. was the teacher on it. I can't remember the challenger. Uh, yeah. Challenger. Yeah. So I think I would be in a, in a flop sweat panic. <laughs> well, they, they canceled the first launch attempt. It was a really thin. I was so mad. I'm like, come on, it's just a little cloud. But anyway, they canceled it. So then we came back out the next night and did it again. And that was actually a lot better. The second night, I wasn't nervous. Like, I felt, okay, I've already done this. I had a little bit of confidence. Um, so the second night was less stressful for me um, just because I had just gone through it the night before uh, without the launch, actual launch. Now, you, in your book, you talk about the fact, I mean, you've spent about seven months of your life off the planet. Yeah. Not a lot of people can say that. You're, yeah. in, a, you're in a very small, unique group. Um, and you tell some interesting stories about the training, which I would have never, I mean, I guess I, I mentally or intellectually understand that they would train you to go into space, but I would have never imagine the kind of training you actually did endure to go right. into space so you tell some 
pretty cool stories, but can we can we start with a, a little bit about the oxygen, the oxygen training? Yes. So in How to Astronaut, I think I've got a chapter for carbon dioxide, actually CO2. And in uh, I've, my kid's book, The Astronaut's Guy Leaving the Planet, it just came out a couple of weeks ago. Um, the whole first section is about the training, you know, how, what do you need to do to, to get to be an astronaut? So CO2 is really important. Um, on earth, we have trees that scrubs the air from CO2, right? Animals, we eat oxygen and we breathe out CO2 and trees and plants eat CO2 and breathe out oxygen. So it's this perfectly designed life support system in space. You don't have that. There's no trees, right? So unless you have machines that take CO2 out of the air, which ironically is what I'm doing now is I work as a consultant in the energy industry um, on carbon dioxide, uh, carbon capture projects. Um, but in space, we did carbon capture just to survive because if you don't, the CO2 builds up and eventually you'll die. And so in space, you don't have convection, you don't have wind. And unless you have fans that circulate the air, you'll just build a CO2 bubble around your head. And um, I had one emergency. Uh, it was a ammonia leak, which is the cooling fluid. And it's super dangerous. If, if it ended up being a false alarm, but if it had, had been real, it actually kills the station. We, it was very serious. And all they turn off all the fans, so it's not circulating this deadly ammonia. Um, and so it took them a while to get them back on. And I actually, while I was sitting there without fans blowing the air, I could feel CO2. And it's really important that you know what that feels like before you launch. So that if you feel it in space, you know what it is and you can move, you can turn the fans on and get some oxygen, you know, but you have to know what that CO2 symptom is. And so uh, this is a really long buildup to the story. So before my first flight, they, they put us in a room and it was like the right stuff. If you ever watch the right stuff movie, uh, they're all sitting there blowing this bubble. It's a, they turn it into a big competition who can have the biggest lung capacity. They're having this competition. So we weren't supposed to have a competition, but basically everything's a competition. So they, they just made you breathe into a paper bag and they're like, breathe into this lunch bag, lunch brown paper bag until you feel your CO2 symptoms, which are you, your fingers and lips get numb and tingly. Uh, they turn blue. Your heart starts to race. You start to sweat. Um, you just start to get a headache and a stuffy head. There's certain things that you notice. Um, so of course we turn and, and then once people were turning blue, they're like, all right, put it down. You're fine. Now you know what it feels like. It's not a competition. So me and one of my crewmates were staring at each other across the table, you know, breathing into the bag. I'm not going to put my bag down first. We've almost died, but I, you know, I may or may not have won that competition, but anyway, um, so <laughs> that's dedication <laughs> to competition. <laughs> it was, it was funny, but it was important because on our first flight on the shuttle flight, we dock, we're on this huge space station. It's like a 747. So the, the there's no CO2 buildup. It's in this massive volume of air and it's it's not a problem. And then we all said goodbye after, you know, 10 days of being docked. We all piled onto the shuttle, which is a really small. So we go from a 747 to a Cessna, right? A, you know, much smaller volume. And all of a sudden there's six people breathing there. And for the last 10 days, there maybe was one or two at a time breathing. So the carbon dioxide level just shot up and everybody started getting CO2 symptoms. It was pretty wild. We had to, the, the shuttle uses lyo lithium hydroxide cans, which is what a lot of submarines use too. So we had to like add some extra lyo cans to, to get the CO2 out. You also tell a great story in your book about the birds hitting the birds. <laughs> in my T-38? Yeah. Wow, I forgot about that. Yes, that was... I have a lot of close calls and jets and that was one of them for sure. We were taking off at Ellington. There's a lot of birds here. If you, if you look at a national bird migration chart, you know, every spring and fall, all the birds come to Houston and then they, they cross the Gulf to the Yucatan and they spend the winter in the, in the Central America. And then they come back through Houston and then go to Maine and Oregon and wherever they go. So they all land in my yard because I feed birds and there's like, I go through a bird feed constantly. And um, so we're taking off. It was a morning flight. Uh, we had to fly T-38s. It's the best training that astronauts do. It's really important. And uh, we, in the sim, you train this. And it was just like in the sim. It was the worst case time, right as I was rotating, just about to take off. And, 
these three little birds went down my left engine. I saw them and there's nothing you can do when you're, you're going 160 knots in the jet, the nose just comes off the runway. You can't maneuver. If you tried to maneuver, you would crash. Um, so boom, we hit the thing. And I was like one second past the point of being able to abort. If you hit them at hundred knots, it's not a problem. You just stop on the runway. If you hit them at 200 and some knots, it's not a problem. You're up, you're flying and you have plenty of airspeed, but we were at like the worst case time. The two main gears still on the runway, the nose up in the air and boom. So, um, the fire engine came on, the fire light came on the left engine, uh, and then T38, the left engine is worse than the right engine because the left engine, uh, drives the hydraulics for different systems, especially the landing gear. So for the fire, you're supposed to shut the engine down, but I didn't want to shut the left engine down because I wanted to get the landing gear up and I didn't want to be mushing around it with no airspeed and landing gear stuck down in a Houston summer, which is, it's hot. You know, you don't get a lot of thrust when the air is hot. So anyway, we, it was the fastest flight of my life. We took, we were able to like sort of barely climb away. As soon as the gear came up, I pulled the, and the engine was making noise and the firelight was on. And as soon as I pulled it out of afterburner, it just froze up. It just and went to zero RPM because and I have a bag full of uh, turbine blades actually from the engine because um, the when it fr when it it doesn't actually freeze it overheats and it expands and then the metal grinds to a halt. Um, so having an engine seize up in a jet is bad because uh, now it used to be producing thrust and now it's just a big uh, air break. You know they're not even rotating. Um, and we had, had a fire and anyway, so we did a like a two seventy and landed on a different runway and. It was, you, we log our hours and tenths of an hour. So, you know, flying down to the Kennedy Space Center is 1.5. We could go on a out and back, go do some practice approaches and back for like a 1.1. That flight was a 0.1. <laughs> it was a 0.1. It was my, and we just stopped on the runway. Um, that was quite a exciting couple of minutes. And my backseater uh, also... <clears throat> we had been on another flight where we were landing in West Texas, coming back to Houston. It was nighttime and we would check the weather. Everything was fine. And then this big windstorm called a haboob showed up out of nowhere and completely shut the runway down. And we had to divert really far away because of this weather. And, uh, we basically landed with no gas left. I kept the, I think I kept the receipt. I think I took 552 gallons and the T-38 is supposed to take 550. Excuse me. This cough is uh, is terrible. So I think it takes 555, and we filled it up with 552. So there was like a couple gallons of gas left in the in the jet. It was the same guy with me, and then we did this, and we were like, we need to stop flying together. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, that really wasn't part I know of your training for space, but I just remember that story that it was just a really kind of an exciting, interesting story that was in yeah. your. Book. It was not. Um, that was not a boring. Neither one of those were boring days. What's the worst thing you had to do to train to go into space? Um, I did medical training. I worked at a hospital for a week. I had a cadaver, got to do stitches in the ER. Anyway, that was, that was actually a great thing. I, I really enjoyed it. I was the crew medical officer. I'm not a doctor. I'm just a fighter pilot, but I was our crew medical officer, which I really enjoyed. I think the mentally the hardest thing was learning Russian. But physically, the the hardest thing is doing spacewalk training. There's a thing called the NBL, the Neutral Buoyancy Lab. It's actually out by Ellington Field, which is where we fly the T-38s. When I had that, when I had that engine explode, um, I did a loop around the NBL when I when I was landing. Um, and we call it the House of Pain. Uh, spending six hours in the spacesuit underwater is painful. I mean, it is a big, bulky, couple hundred pound spacesuit. Um, it has metal rings for certain movements. So it's like a human shoulder can do, imagine a baseball pitcher, all the motion that that shoulder does in this EMU, you can only move in one plane. It's very restrictive. A lot of astronauts are walking around with their arm in slings after they get shoulder surgery, um, after some training accident in the spacesuit. So, um, it's great and it's very satisfying and it, it, it prepared me perfectly for my spacewalks. But the actual, you know, the few hours that you're in the NBL, a lot of times is not a lot of fun. It's a lot of work.
Talk to me about the sensation of once you're in space far enough out that you can you can look and see the earth you realize you're no longer on it <laughs> like you've pulled away from yeah what's that sensation like what what is what's going through your head what's yeah it's it's profound um i used to have some of my pictures on the wall i got a new this is my logo i i just added that it took my space pictures down um the it was hard on my first flight. I was the pilot and I was like helping to fly Endeavor. Like we had stuff to do. I just wanted to look outside. It was so beautiful. It was just, I, you can't, you actually cannot imagine how beautiful it is until you see it with your own eyes. And I had to focus on flying because I'm the pilot and I'm flying the shuttle. So it's, it's actually difficult to, to not just look out and see it. Um, it is a beautiful planet. The IMAX movie that I helped make was called A Beautiful Planet, and that was well-named. It, it really is. You could see some environmental problems. You could see pollution in China and also India. You could see deforestation, which is terrible in the, in the Amazon and Madagascar. But for the most part, it's a beautiful planet. Um, I could go on and on about what it's like to see it. It's a profound emotional experience to be here and your planet is over there and you're not on it. Um, it was that, really profound. Is, <laughs> I, is that what prompted you to take your, I mean, take pictures? Did you take your camera right from the first trip or it's like when you went back again, you took it? Well, I didn't take mine. You're actually not allowed to take your own camera yet, but NASA has all kinds of cameras. It's a photographer's dream. It's, um, on my last flight, we had Nikon, uh, D4s. Then shortly after, after I got back, they replaced it with a D5. And they're replacing it with a, uh, a mirrorless camera now. But anyway, they're, prof they're professional cameras you see at the Super Bowl and stuff. That's the kind of still cameras we had. And then when I shot A Beautiful Planet, we had actually like Hollywood quality IMAX video, a Canon C500 video camera. So for a photographer, it's definitely a dream because there's also every type of lens. We had eight millimeter fisheye ultra wide angle lens all the way up to 800 millimeter, like a telescope with a doubler. So you could get the widest of wide possible down to the biggest zoom in lens and everything in between. Um, and so I, just as a photographer, per, like an amateur, you know, I always loved cameras. It was, that, that was a dream come true for me. So now you're, you're in space and you, you're starting to capture images. Um, that's really the bulk of what that what your book about a view from above it really captures so many uh of these gorgeous images of earth different parts of it but you talk a little bit about what your favorite is so i kind of know already but i'm going to ask you for the podcast purposes what was your what's your favorite photograph that you took it's hard to say i remember the last picture i took in space i i wanted to get one more wide angle of earth and the sun. I liked wide angle pictures. A lot of guys get up there and they do zoom ins of cities and those are cool. But like if you, it, you could just fly an airplane over a city and get that picture, right? I wanted things that you couldn't get from earth. And that was um, the wide angle stuff. So I took this, I think it was a 10 millimeter fisheye lens with a real closed aperture F22. And when you do that, you get a starburst pattern around the sun and it makes the edges and you get a lot of really dark shadows, which looks cool. And I looked, I took the picture, I looked at the uh, the monitor on the camera and it was, the sun has like, I don't know, 10 or 20 points of light. And the earth is just this thin blue crescent horizon with dark in the near, in the near ground. It was beautiful. And I was like, this is the best picture I'm ever going to take in my life. I'm done. So I took the card out, downloaded it went down the Russian segment, put on my spacesuit, and uh, came back to Earth. <laughs> but the, the I think the aurora was the other, <coughs> seeing the northern lights and the southern lights, um, you know, I took lots of pictures of them. There's one particular time lapse that I did, and that photo's in View From Above, the book, the Nat Geo book. Um, the auroras are incredible. They're just spectacular. And if you get no moon when you when you're taking pictures at night earth is just black with city lights and that's it but if it's a full moon you you can see earth so i have this time lapse flying over northern europe where you can see all the snow down in norway and denmark um 
in Russia. It's it's amazing to see the earth illuminated just from the moonlight, um, not even from the sun. I could go on and on. I, I love well, taking pictures. <laughs> from the space, does the moon look different than it does from here? I took a lot of pictures of the moon. Um, and you're about the same distance. We're only a couple hundred miles up. So it's still, you know, 230 <laughs> or 240,000 miles, whatever it is. So it's it's really not any closer. But the difference is it's against such a pure black background. And there's no clouds and there's no haze. And so it's a really pure view. Um, nothing is blocking it. I, and I have some great moonset time lapses where you can see the moon setting behind the earth and it gets squashed and it turns yellowed and from the the haze in the atmosphere it does diffraction and um, at first it looks at first it turns blue because it's a blue atmosphere you see the little thin blue line of earth's atmosphere and then it eventually turns yellow as it gets really close to the ground and anyway it's really cool to see the sun or to see the moon set uh in space what about other planets? Were there any other planets that you felt like you got a clear view from there? A from absolutely. The space station? Yeah. So you can see from Mercury to Saturn with your own eyes. So I got to know all the planets by brightness and also by color. You know, um, Venus is yellow, Saturn's yellow, Jupiter's orange, Mars is red. Um, the one planet to me that was most interesting was Mercury. Because I think it's real close to the sun, obviously. It's the first planet. And... I think very few human, humans have ever seen Mercury and known what they were looking at. It's it, it's a planet that you just don't see from Earth very often. If you live in a place where there's trees or buildings, you'll never see it because it, you have to have a clear view to the horizon because it never gets very far above the horizon because uh, it's so close to the sun. You can only see it um, right after sunset or right before sunrise because, you know, when it's midnight, it's, it's underneath you. It's way over by the sun. Um, and I was looking for it. Well, it was probably last year in Houston. I'm like, I wonder if you can see Mercury. And I couldn't see it. Even though I had a clear view, it was visible, but the humidity just blocked it out. Like the, the, so anyway, it was really cool to see Mercury. And I saw it many, many times, took a bunch of pictures of it. Um, uh, that was, that was interesting for me. Your spacewalk. There's got to be something to that sensation in your brain. The first time you're going to leave the spaceship and actually walk <laughs> right i mean you're in space with your i mean that's that's the whole deal right i mean you're an astronaut and you think about walking in space not only flying into space but to actually walk around in space at the space station and like what's what's that like what's that first step like you thinking yeah so um <laughs> i never did spacewalks as a shuttle pilot they didn't let the pilots do that they didn't want them to float away because they had they had to have somebody there to land their space shuttle but now there's not really pilots anymore. There's the, the capsules are automated. And once you get to the space station, everybody does everything. So on my last, my long duration, 200 day mission, uh, I had a chance to do three spacewalks. Um, it was like, I've probably written more about that than anything else in all of my books. Uh, How to Astronaut, there's a whole section. In my, the kid's book, The Astronaut's Guide, there's a whole section. Um, I could have write a whole book about it. It's, it's really amazing. And the, to, I guess to put it into context, when, when I first went out, um, the first thing I did, I, we have tethers that just like cords of rope or metal that attach you to something else. And so I took a safety tether and I put it down on a handrail. So you crawl around on these handrails, um, which are kind of like fence poles. They're maybe an inch or two wide. And that's how you move is with your hands crawling on, on handrails. So I put the tether down and I let go. And I looked down at earth because a lot of my friends had said, Hey, you know, they got vertigo or they got really disoriented. So I just wanted, excuse me. I just wanted to prove to myself that I wasn't going to get vertigo. So I put the handrail down and let go and I was fine. Um, so then uh, <laughs> the next thing, there was a, a shortcut you could take. You could reach out as hard, extend your arms as hard as you can. Think of a basketball player showing his wingspan. And you could grab onto this storage module and crawl from there. And that would save you three or four minutes. If you didn't reach over and just grab this other module, you'd have to crawl hand over hand and stick to the inside part of the station. And it just took a few extra minutes. And in the pool, 
you always took the shortcut. Um, but it required you extending your arms as far as you can to, it was my maximum wingspan. And so I went out and I started to do that and I went, no, I'm not going to do that. And I came back and I just took the long way around, kept both hands on the station. And, um, it, it was like, you know, the magnitude of what was happening. I'm out in outer space. I'm not, I don't want to be hanging on barely by two fingers, barely gripping something. Um, it definitely makes you feel like you're on the clock and like you need to really concentrate. You're focused on what you're doing because um, you don't want to make any mistakes. Is there some plan if you were float away? Like, do the others know how to come save you? Yeah. Well, actually on the shuttle, when the shuttle was just alone, the shuttle commander could like fly the shuttle to get you. That, that wasn't a problem. But once you're docked, the station can't maneuver. So you, it's not going to come get you. Um, the good news is orbital mechanics, if you float away, usually half an orbit later, you'll float back. So you should just, Newton F equals MA will bring you back to the station probably. But we do have a safety tether, which is a wire that holds you on. So if you accidentally let go and you didn't have any local tethers down, you could float away and the safety tether would be still be attached. And then if you let go by accident and you didn't have any local tethers down and the safety tether broke. So this is a lot of ifs. There is a small jetpack that you're on your back. So you could fly back with a, um, it's called, well, SAFER is the, it's a NASA acronym for jetpack. And uh, so you, you do have a little bit of carbon dioxide, like cans of gas and it's not rocket fuel. It's just CO2 blowing out the other end. And um, so you can't go very fast, <laughs> but you could uh, fly yourself back if you needed to. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> That's definitely a state of uh, a panic, I would think, if you start floating away to keep your mind, you know, focused on, oh, what what did I train for? Okay, these are the, the protocols. I think focusing on the protocols uh, in that situation would be the hardest thing for me, right? I would just see myself as floating off into space <laughs> to be seen again. <laughs> you can't, you can't think of that, that you have to keep your mind focused on the task and not space is a bad place to be if you're nervous and like, what was that noise? Cause you hear, cause noises happen and you don't always know what they are. And so sometimes you just have to go, okay, it's fine. Whatever. I'm sure it's okay. <laughs> um, if you, if you focus on those things, you, it would be a bad six months for sure. Well, what about the lack of gravity? Uh, what's that yeah. sensation like for, for the uh, people who've never had that experience? <clears throat> Well, it feels like you're falling um, because you're falling. That's what's happening. You're, it's not a lack of gravity. There's lots of gravity where the station is probably 90% or more because um, you're only a couple hundred miles away from Earth. But you're not standing. I'm, like right now, we're sitting in chairs. And so we're falling towards the center of the Earth, but the chair's catching us. And that's what we feel. In space, you would literally be falling. It's like if you jump off a diving board, you can feel it for one second, you know. If you're in an airplane and the pilot's going fast, he can push over on the stick and you'll get a few seconds of weightlessness, which is cool. NASA has a airplane that we train for weight. There's a chapter in there. I think your first taste of weightlessness, um, the vomit comet and that's <laughs> is, what, right. is, is what we call it. So, um, but in space, once they turn the engines off, you're falling for two weeks on the shuttle or 200 days on the space station. So it definitely takes some time to get used to, but that's what it feels like. It feels like you're falling. You tell this really neat little anecdote in the book about calling your dad, right, from space because you thought you were going to be in trouble over something. Yeah, well, the good news, this is great if you're in space. Um, there is a phone system uh, that it's like FaceTime audio. It's like using the internet to make a phone call called voice over IP. And uh, the internet's not great. It only happens when you have certain satellite connections. But when you do have it, you can go on a laptop. And when I was there, the laptops, <laughs> the software they had didn't have contacts. So you literally had to remember everybody's phone number. I had a sheet of paper with phone numbers written out. Like if I wanted to dial my kids, they have cell phones. I had to like type in their phone number. It was like being back in the eighties when you had to memorize everybody's phone numbers. Oh no. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but it works and you can call people and that's a great way to stay in touch. Um, and people normally take your call. If they see, the, oh, there's a call coming in from the space station, they'll, they'll normally take your call. And then it's free. You don't have to pay for it. 
they can't call you, which is great. And then if, as you fly around the earth and you fly out of the line of sight from the satellite, the call drops. And so you never have long calls because they're just, you just suddenly get cut off. So it's a, it's a great way to have a phone. Nobody so, can call you and it just cuts itself off randomly. Right. So you have this little antidote where you talk about the fact that you call your dad for advice, like literally up, up in this, in this space station. Yeah. yeah. And you can, I mean, like I said, it's, it's one of the ways to stay. It's the best way to stay in touch. You also have email. Um, they also set up, um, uh, video calls on the weekend. So you can't do it like right now we're on zoom. Uh, and you can do this. You just have, they have to set it up. They have to have special equipment. So it's a, it's a unique thing. Actually, it's been a few years since I did it. They made to have regular zoom now. I'm not sure if they do or not, but when I, when I was there, they had to actually go through some effort to set up the weekend video calls. So you're in space when Leonard Nimoy dies. I was, yeah. I, we were doing spacewalks. Um, we had three spacewalks in a week, super, super, super busy. So the night before the third one, it was a number three was totally different than number one and two. So we had a lot of hardware to get ready. And I got an email from NASA public affairs. Hey, Terry Leonard Nimoy passed away. Mr. Spock had died. Can you do something? And so I didn't, so I'm like, I don't have time for this. So I went down to the cupola and I got, I did the Vulcan salute, you know, the V and uh to live long and prosper and i it took some time to get my hand and earth in focus to get my hand and earth exposed eventually i got a shot i emailed it to i had a guy that was tweeting for me so i would email him the tweet and he would actually physically post it to twitter so he <coughs> posted this picture uh with no uh words just a photo of live long and prosper with earth in the background and I started getting all these emails. Hey, great job, great job. What I didn't realize is that I, I took the picture of the Vulcan salute over Boston and over Cape Cod and Massachusetts and Long Island. And Leonard Nimoy was from Boston. So it was a really cool uh, tribute to him. As, as we like to say in the Air Force, I'd rather be lucky than good. And that was definitely a case of uh, being lucky. Almost like a coincidence, really. I guess that that you happened to be in that spot when you, when you did it. Yeah, yeah. it was... I like, you know, divine appointment, whatever. I, I'm just, I, I'll, I'll take credit for it. <laughs> <laughs> I have a question for you from, and she's a paralegal. Uh, she's a giant fan of yours. Her name, her name is Shaitana. Um, okay. And she has this technical question because she's a bit of a uh, an astronaut NASA nerd. Mm -hmm. uh, and she said that she's, she's done a lot, I guess, of reading about um, how, the locations of where you launch, like Cape Canaveral, where it's located, um, apparently are connected to the best angle to get to the equator because yeah. the equator gives you the the bigger burst. <coughs> yeah. And Just I imagine. She, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. yeah. So that she was saying, one, is that true uh, that essentially, you know, you're taking off, you know, to hit that equator are, are, are all the locations where you'd be launching from coming towards a spot where you can clip into the uh, the energy of the equator or are some of the places you launch from not doing that yeah so imagine the earth is a basketball spinning these uh, harlem globetrotters right they put the ball on their fingertip and spin it so the part of the basketball on his finger is not moving at all it's rotating but it's not moving but if you go up to the equator of the basketball, it's moving pretty fast. You know, like if you were an ant standing on the basketball, you'd have a lot of wind in your hair as you went around, right? right. That's the same way. If you're at the equator, that's the maximum motion to the east. Um, it's probably 14 or 1500 feet a second, something like that. Um, where the Kennedy Space Center is 28 degrees north latitude, it's like a thousand feet per second that the earth is moving to the east. So when you're at the beach in Florida or in Jersey or in Florida, um, you're moving a thousand feet a second towards the sunrise when you see the sunrise. So that's free speed, which when you're launching into space, free speed is super important because speed is everything, right? Um, and that's why we have the Kennedy Space Center in Florida and not the Kennedy Space Center in Massachusetts. We could have it there. It's just would be a lot more expensive to launch rockets from there. Plus the weather would be worse. 
but uh, so yes, it's true. The closer you are to the equator, the more energy you get. And the rush, the Russians, um, Baikonur, their launch pad is like 48 degrees latitude. So it's much worse as far as the free boost you get. Um, but when we decided to partner with them, we had to, <clears throat> when you launch out of Kennedy, you launch to the Northeast. And so another interesting thing about launch locations is that the launch location you launch from latitude is the minimum inclination that your orbit can be. So Kennedy Space Center is 28 degrees north latitude, which means if you go in in the low Earth orbit, everything that launches from there, when it crosses the equator, it's going 28 degrees north or south of the equator. Um, it, say Baikonur is 50 degrees north latitude, so the lowest inclination it can have would be crossing the equator at 50 degrees. And that's also the farthest north, well, that for inclination, that's what it is. So you could never launch from Baikonur or from the Kennedy Space Center and fly over directly over the equator in low Earth orbit. It would just, it, you could, but it would take way too much energy. No one's ever built a rocket big enough to do that. Um, if you go all the way up to geosynchronous, which is like 23, 24,000 miles up, then you can, then you could go down over the equator. And that's where you get all your dish, dish, uh, satellite dishes and stuff for TV. They're fixed, right? They're pointed at the same part in the sky. So those satellites are just flying right over the equator. It takes them 24 hours to orbit the earth, which, and it takes the earth 24 hours to go around, which means they're always in the same direction. That's why you can have a fixed antenna pointing at the satellite because it's in a 24 hour period orbit. Um, so yes, the latitude of your launch is very important. And the Russians generally launch mostly to the east. <clears throat> so the ISS is in what's called a 51.6 degree inclination which means it flies from 51 degrees north latitude, then it goes down south, 51 degrees south latitude, then it comes back up north, 51. So it's always goes between 51 north and 51 south latitude, um, which is tied to your inclination, which is tied to your launch location. And so if you're launching from, if you're a, a SpaceX cargo ship going to the space station from Florida, when you take off, you don't go straight east, like the Hubble Space Telescope, they just went straight east on that. So it's in a 28-degree inclination orbit because they had to get that thing really high. They wanted as much energy as they can. If we're going to the space station, you have to turn left and waste some energy doing what's called a plane change, getting your heading going from due east to northeast. And that's how you catch up with the space station. The rocket has to get off the launch pad and then kind of yaw to the left and get itself going northeast. Um, in order to match the same plane as the space station. That was a really long answer. Sorry about that. No, no, that's great. I mean, because it sort of seems to me that then you're always taking off from the center of the earth. If you're, if you're I'm using your basketball analogy, um, the, you're always kind of taking off from the equator. But if once you're connecting to get that free energy, as you put it, do you change directions at all? Yeah. Are, no. are you flying? Are you continuing to fly what I will say is west and east because you're at the equator? Do you are you ever then getting that energy and going uh, what is on, up from the top of the basketball? Yeah. So no. Once you're in orbit, especially low Earth orbit, you can't go left and right. You're stuck in that plane. So imagine you got a hula hoop going around the basketball. Right. If you're up at twenty or thirty thousand miles, then you can go left and right. That you don't have to spend that much energy to do it. But when you're down low, you're going 17,000 miles an hour. So if you're going 17,000 miles an hour this way and you want to go 30 degrees to the left, remember from geometry, you that's half of this vector, right? So you need, I don't know, seven or eight or 9,000 miles an hour worth of rocket fuel to turn you 30 degrees. Um, so no one has that much rocket fuel in the tank. You, you maybe have a couple hundred miles an hour, but you don't have eight or nine or 10,000 miles an hour. So once you're in an orbit, you can't really go left and right. You can climb and dive. And what you do is you climb to slow down and you the lower you are, the faster you go. And the higher you are, the slower you go. So you manage your elevation to rendezvous with something. Um, if you have a long way to go, you stay low and you'll catch up faster if you're up and then you slowly climb up and 
right before you dock, you're at the same elevation. If you're at a different elevation, you'll be going faster or slower than the thing you're docking with. So you can go up and down, but you can't go left and right once you're in low Earth orbit. So with all the time you spent in space, um, I, this unique view you get of the, just the universe, right? The galaxy, the yeah. universe. Would you say your time in space influenced your views on God at all? Mm -hmm. uh, there's a chapter about that, right? Is is there a God and other small questions? Um, it didn't. You know, I'm a, I'm a Christian. I was a Christian before I launched. I, I think the way it altered my view, I hope anyway, is that I'm a lot less of a black and white person. When you're young, it's easy to be black and white. Um, the older you get, especially like if you look at Earth from space, Hopefully you're, you become less of a black and white person. So I came away from my space flights um, thinking I don't have enough faith to be an atheist, which is a unusual perspective, but you know, the universe is so amazing. The force of gravity and the weak electromagnetic and the strong electromagnetic and the subatomic particles. Biology, I spent months uh, doing ultrasounds and uh, laser scans of my eyeball and my brain and my heart, like just the single cell, one single cell life is way more complicated than this fancy Omega watch that I'm wearing. Right. Um, uh, but my son was a chemical engineer in college. He, he I said, how many molecules are there in, in a cell? It's, it's either millions, billions, or trillions. There's a lot of molecules in a, in a cell. So I just don't think all those could just randomly assemble without somebody helping it along from a scientific point of view. Like if you found this, like I said, this watch in the woods, you wouldn't think, oh, some lightning and wind must have put that thing together. You would think mm, somebody had to make that fancy piece of equipment. So from a from a just scientific point of view, I think life needs some help getting going. It, once it's going, there's science and biology and physics that dictate how things happen. But that initial step, I think, needs, some, needs something. Right. to get it to get it going and i get i got this question a lot we uh, we put something up on facebook you know for questions and we also got a lot uh of people interested in uh i guess extraterrestrials oh yeah if it did space flight influence you at all in in your opinion in that regard yeah i have a podcast called down to earth with terry verts <laughs> and my most popular guests were some ufo guys i had um former head of the Senate Intel Committee, Undersecretary of Defense, guy named Chris Mellon, super smart, very legit, very professional guy. And he's the guy that released the videos. He got the Pentagon to release those Navy fighter pilot videos a few years ago. Um, another guy, Lou Elizondo, was on the podcast. And, you know, I, I never saw anything. I never saw any UFOs or aliens or anything like that. That's not to say that they're not out there. Um, there's a lot of planets. There's billions of planets, right? Just in our galaxy alone. So you'd think that there's life, but then again, what I was just saying, I, I don't think scientifically, I don't think it's just going to randomly happen. I think somebody needs to start it. And even if it's there, man, those stars are really, 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 really far apart. The fastest spaceship we've ever sent, I think is New Horizons. It was, or we have Voyager. There's two Voyager probes that have left the solar system. And it would take those things tens of thousands of years just to get to the nearest star where there's not life. Um, it's a uh, a three-star system. There's an interesting Chinese science fiction book called Three-Body Problem. It's a really fascinating read, uh, highly recommended by Xixin Liu. It's, a, it's probably the world's most popular book because it's in China and they have lots of readers. Um, but uh, anyway, so... It would take a long time for somebody to get to us, to say the least. So, so I mean, in reality, if you believe that um, the UFOs are truly from another planet, they certainly have mastered getting here than and finding us better than where we're, we were able to find them. You know, there there's a lot of speculation. What are these things? They're moving super fast. You know, we have infrared camera tracks of them. We have radar tracks of them. I don't know all the details. I haven't seen the Pentagon, you know, inner workings, what they've seen. Uh, I <laughs> I hope they're not Russian or Chinese, because if they are, we're, we're really screwed. Um, I don't know. Who knows? Um, who knows what this stuff is? I Like I said, I never saw any aliens out there. And 
if they sent us stuff, either they figured out a new physics that we don't understand or, or they sent these, maybe, you know, maybe there's some type of unmanned probe. Um, that's what one of the, one of the theories that it's not my theory, but somebody else was saying that maybe they just came in on, you know, with just robots looking for what they find and they're going to report back to the mothership and, um, maybe a thousand years from now or something, we get a visitor. Well, I mean, that interesting that you said, I, I didn't even realize there were that many planets in our galaxy. Yeah, for sure. We, we have, NASA has a few probes, uh, and they can only find planets that are on the same plane as us. In other words, if there's a star and the planet's going like this, like the planet's not passing in front of the star, we're, we can't detect those. So the only planets we can detect are planets like that that pass in front of the star. And we'll see a very small drop in the brightness of the star as the planet goes in front of it, just because it's blocking it. It's kind of like a mini eclipse. Um, or sometimes you can see feel the wobble. But if a lot of these planets are like a hundred times bigger than Jupiter, they're right next to this. They orbit every four days around the star. They're just ridiculous planets that life could never live on. Right? They're basically other stars. But the probes that we have have gotten more advanced, more sensitive to where they can actually find, you know, in some cases, what they think is Earth-like planets. And Webb, the new Webb telescope has some really sensitive, uh, I guess they're spectrometers. They're going to look for certain signature, chemical signatures in the atmosphere um, that when the star's light passes through a planet's atmosphere... You know, like if there's oxygen, that'll block out a certain frequency of light. If there's nitrogen, it'll block out a different frequency of light. So they're they're hoping to be able to do spectroscopy and analyze extra solar planets, which is just incredible to look at what's in the atmosphere of planets far away. And there's certain chemicals that just don't exist naturally that would only happen in the presence of life, like oxygen. Oxygen's so um, combustible. It, you know, it, it in reactive, um, lots of oxygen would mean one thing. Lots of CO2 would mean something else. Um, I, you know, I, I don't, I'm not an expert in, in planetary biology, but there are some chemicals that are very, um, unique to life. So if we see that we might go, Hey, there might be life in that planet. I've had some guys on my podcast to talk about that very thing. Um, so it's pretty fascinating. They're still far away. But we're we might get some interesting looks. We'll see. I guess I'm I think I, I represent more of the average man in this regard. You know, so we all think of the only planets that exist in our galaxy are the ones we know of, right? Like we think Pluto, Mars, you know. Right. Um that's it's news to me that there are literally so many other planets out there that maybe don't have names, but they're out there. I think we found thousands now that we've actually detected. And just doing the math, it's a statistical problem. You know, we found thousands that are within a thousand light years and the galaxy is tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of light years across. And we can't, we can't, this far stars are too far away to, to analyze. So we can only look at stars relatively close. Um, and it has to be in our plane. So if, if there's a thousand like this, there's probably a million in all the other possible planes that, that they could be in. Um, and we're only looking in a small section, assuming it's the same everywhere else. You know, I, I, I think from what I've read that there's billions of planets in our solar system. And most, most of those are, you know, right next to the star. It would never be able to support life or they're massively huge. You can never support life, but you know, it doesn't, a small percentage of a billion is still a lot of earth-like planets. So Okay, so let me to ask you about your for your film. You just directed one more orbit, mm -hmm. right? Your, this is your first film. Can we talk about that a little bit? Let's talk about it. Yeah, it was a documentary. Uh, this airplane right there Gulf, is a Gulfstream. Um, actually, we, we got it from Qatar. It was a Qatari uh, G650 from Qatar Airways. Uh, we set a world record flying over the North and South Pole. Uh, we did it on the anniversary of the 50th Apollo launch a few years ago um, as a way to like do a tribute to them. We did it. Uh, we partnered with this organization called the Carbon Underground, which to promote, uh, they have a 
basically using nature and, and land use as a technique to pull carbon out of the atmosphere. So we promoted them through the project. Uh, we, in, we interacted with several different schools that talked to schools while we were doing this. I brought my Russian crewmate Gennady Padalka with me and he's a great guy, a good friend of mine. Um, I just worked with his daughter on another film last week, actually. She, she lives in LA. So it was a great project. It was a lot of fun and I love directing. I kind of want to be a director. And so that was my first time directing a documentary, uh, which was great. Well, you've pretty much accomplished so many things that the rest of us can only dream of. All right. So this is, this is another big area to get into another big and exciting area. Are you one of those people who are very, uh, in, I hate to say addicted, but to, uh, uh, but are you, are you one of those people that you, you need that level of excitement in your career? <laughs> yeah. I don't know if it's, um, <clears throat> it's not necessarily the excitement, but I don't know. I'm ADD. Like I did, excuse this chronic cough. I got, I did 30 years in the air force and I was ready to, you know, leave government and be a entrepreneur and energy is kind of my passion because it's what makes our lives move down here on earth or not. So I've been working in the energy industry part-time as a consultant and um, writing and, and working on some film and TV projects that, that that's kind of, I hope I, it's a tough, tough, tough business, trust me. But I hope that um, some of these things take off and we'll see. But I, I, I do like a variety of things and I kind of felt like I had accomplished, you know, what there was to accomplish in, in, um, in my last career and wanted to move on to this career. Before I let you go, I, I mean, I have to ask if there's one moment in your career, one moment that you've experienced in, in the entirety of your career up until now um, that will always be with you. Like this is the, this is the moment, that one moment in time, like the Whitney Houston song. Like, is there one moment in time that this is frozen in your brain? It'll, it'll be with you forever. Mm -hmm. I remember on my first spacewalk, I was out on the front of the station and spacewalks are just busy there. You don't have any time. You're just, you have a face full of space station and equipment and you're moving stuff around and you're plugging things in and you're just busy. And my, I was waiting a couple seconds on my crewmate. So I stopped and I just rotated around and I could look back at the universe and like, I was seeing creation from God's point of view. It's like, I could hear from him saying, I am, and I could see the sun was rising. I, the station was out of my field of view. All I could see was like the earth. And I thought, man, humans aren't supposed to see this. And then I had to turn around and get back to work, plugging in cables. So we were laying cables. And so that was a pretty powerful moment. For sure. Wow. Yeah. Uh, so tell people where they can find out more about you. If they want to watch yeah. you, if they want to buy your books, if they want to uh, watch the movie. <clears throat> yeah. So One More Orbit, you can download it. I don't know. It was on Apple and it was on a bunch of different online things. I, 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 don't, know if, I don't know if you can rent or, yeah, streaming or, or if you have to buy it. But um, it's a fun, I was very proud of it. It was a really fun project to do. Um, View from Above is my Nat Geo photography book. How to Astronaut is my essay collection of like a fun Mother's Day or Father's Day kind of book. Um, and then The Astronaut's Guide to Leaving the Planet is my recent kid, illustrated kids book. So if you've got a kid that likes to read, this is a this is a great summer reading thing. Um, I have a website called terryvirch.com. My social media is Astro Terry. Um, I have a podcast called Down to Earth with Terry Virch. It's actually on pause right now. My producer lost his editor and blah, blah, blah. So <laughs> we're taking a few months off. Um, but that's been a blast. I've had all kinds of people on the podcast, very random, uh, Academy award winners, uh, astronomers and, and space scientists, um, some politicians, some people talking about the war in Ukraine I had the head of NATO on, um, uh, had the Washington post food critic on talking about food. So it's a completely ADD random, <laughs> just cool conversations with interesting people, but not any theme at all. Just very, just people I know, which is a pretty random group of people. Having interesting conversations is what I, I, li I like best about the, the podcast, right? I get mm -hmm. to step out of the world I've known, which is the law, you know, for three decades 
uh, and find out a little bit about what's going on in other people's worlds. And I, I find yeah. that pretty interesting. I love it. I love it. Yeah. Thank you so much for doing the podcast and staying a little bit over with me. I know we yeah. went about five minutes over, but I appreciate you hung in there. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. This is, this is a fun conversation. Looking forward to seeing it online. And please come back as you're doing more things. So, I mean, I, I, I know for sure, I feel it, you know, whatever you're working on TV wise, movie wise, I'm sure mm -hmm. it's going to get its green light. Uh, so once <laughs> you're, you know, you're involved in a new project, please come back and talk to me about it. Okay. That would be fun.